The speech is made, the Jews can wait. It's a line about the president sending the US Army onto the streets of Detroit to quell riots in 1967. And it comes from a folk song called Black Day in July. Radio stations in 30 states banned it. The immediate Jews that summer were 43 dead. But as Coleman Young, Detroit's first African-American mayor, would later write, the heaviest casualty was the city. President Trump is once again deploying federal forces in American cities, pushing law and order up the political agenda. The pendulum is swinging, Gordon Lightfoot's lyrics went in 1967. Is it swinging now? With 101 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, might this be a law and order election? The death of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer led to calls to defund the police nationwide. Two months later, efforts to reform policing in the city are proving rancorous, while some blame the protest movement for a spike in shootings and murders. President Trump has praised the work of unidentified armed officers dispersing protests in Portland. He's pledged to surge federal law enforcement in Chicago and beyond. In this episode, we'll hear from Minneapolis, where this all started, and find out how previous elections have flipped on crime. With me, as ever, to talk about all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. John, how are you doing? I can see on our video conference that you're in a car, occasionally opening the door to get some fresh air. What's going on your end? Yeah, John, I am coming to you live from a car parked in front of my house. And I got to say that if someone had told me when I was 15 that in 30 years, you're going to be doing a radio show from the back of a Toyota, I'd have said that sounds about right. Um, it's a long story. I was in Minneapolis last week. It's on the Cuomo mandatory quarantine list. So I am living in my empty house as it's being gutted. Well, let's make this as seamless as we can so that you're not sort of gently steamed by the end of the podcast. Charlotte, how's your week been? My week has been pretty good. For about 10 years, my husband has been trying to make cappuccinos from a really old asbestos-laced cappuccino machine, and it's tasted more or less like poison. And in the past month, he's finally figured out how to make something drinkable. So that's been hugely exciting in the world of COVID at home. Yeah, that sounds like a giant lockdown leap to me. That's not a small thing. Well, the highlight of my week was going into the office, which is the first time I've done so in about three months. So, John, as you mentioned, you're quarantining and steaming yourself in your car because you've been on a reporting trip to Minneapolis, where this whole story started, where George Floyd died outside a corner store at the hands of a police officer. You talked to a lot of people there. What did you find? So you remember that about a month ago, Minneapolis's city council approved a proposal to disband the city's police force. No one was really sure what that meant at the time, and a month has not brought much more clarity. So I went there to figure out what people are really talking about when they talk about police reform. What I found was the city that sort of knew what it wanted its police department not to act like, a city that agreed that the status quo isn't working, especially for African Americans in Minneapolis. 
But the city was also deeply divided about precisely how it wanted to get to the next level, how it wanted to reform police, whether it wanted to disband police. So I had a number of conversations with a number of people. One of the most interesting was with Nikima Levy Armstrong, who is a civil rights lawyer and the founder of the Racial Justice Network. And when I talked to her, she told me the city council had jumped to an extreme position without engaging the community most affected by police violence. There have been over 200 shootings this year alone in the city of Minneapolis. Well over 100 of those shootings have happened since George Floyd was killed. So we've seen a significant uptick in the level of violence in Minneapolis. And a lot of this violence started to increase after Minneapolis City Council members made their statements saying that they were going to abolish the police. It's very concerning amongst residents. And we wonder what kind of system will be in place if they are able to so quickly abolish the police force without adequately vetting the various solutions. She's also cynical about the motivations for city councilors embracing such radical change while those responsible for police violence haven't been held accountable. Why now would the city decide to make such a drastic move when George Floyd is not the first person to be killed and not the first person in which there's been a huge community outcry for justice? It leads us all to question the motives of city council members, because instead of the magnifying glass being placed on their performance thus far and their failure to enact reforms, now what they're doing is capturing headlines around the nation and looking as if they're pushing for radical changes. So it's almost like a bait and switch is happening right before our eyes. I also spoke to R.T. Ryback, who is a three-term mayor of Minneapolis, and he's now the CEO of the Minneapolis Foundation. He was really interesting on the origins of the problems of police violence the city is now grappling with. Immediately after 9-11, there was a militarization of policing in America that was tied to taking all the dollars that had been used for community policing and shifting them into homeland security, meaning we had no money for community programs that we knew worked, but we had a ton of money to do tactical training for cops and put them in turtle suits and all these things that militarize policing. We need to roll all of that back. He's more sympathetic to the city leadership than Nikema Armstrong is, but he did have a similar warning. The best thing happening in Minneapolis is that we're looking at dramatic reform of police. I think the worst thing happening is that that message is getting telescoped into a really misunderstood term, defund the police. And if someone says to me, should we take dollars that are being used for force and move them into upstream solutions, I'd say absolutely. But if somebody said to me, should you eliminate a whole police department, I'd say no. We don't have a choice to change right now. And I'm proud of the fact that Minneapolis, in spite of and actually because of the horrible tragedy of George Floyd's murder, We are actually being led by, I think, rightfully, a city council and a mayor who want to make big change. I think the opportunity is to do that in a way that's smart and not about slogans.
So John, shortly after George Floyd's murder, Jacob Fry, the mayor of Minneapolis, famously got heckled and shouted out of a rally for refusing to get on board with defunding the police. The city council then went forward and voted to defund Minneapolis's force. That was a couple of months ago now. What happened next? The day after Fry was shouted out of that rally, nine members of the city council addressed another rally in Powderhorn Park in South Minneapolis, near where George Floyd was killed. And they all said they wanted to abolish the police. Now, most people think that those nine counselors all had different ideas about precisely what abolishing the police department meant. The people applauding them probably had hundreds of different ideas about precisely what it meant, but they did put themselves on this path. So they proposed amending the city's charter to replace the police department with a Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. Now, precisely what that department would do, whether there would be a police department underneath it, whether there would be law enforcement officers, armed officers, how many, those kinds of things, that's all unclear. The city council's budget department voted to take $1.1 million away from the police and put it toward upstream violence prevention efforts. But they're still embroiled in this controversy over precisely what they mean when they say abolish the police department. And Charlotte, Minneapolis is not alone in talking about defunding or abolishing its police force. Yes, you see cities across the country that are either debating reducing funding from the police force or actually doing so. So in Baltimore, the city council has approved a cut of about $22 million from the police department's budget. In Berkeley, California, they have approved measures that will eventually reduce the police department's budget by about 50%. In Colorado, Connecticut, it's really, you see this bubbling up across the country. New York, where I'm based, was an interesting case. At the end of June, the city council voted to cut about a billion dollars from the police department's $6 billion operating budget. But you had this intense debate. No one was really satisfied by that announcement. There were some who said, this is the wrong time to be cutting the police budget because there has been an increase in murders. There are other people who say that this wasn't a sufficient cut. And so this debate about what we mean exactly by defunding the police and whether this is an appropriate time to do so continues to be active even in really progressive places like New York. John, as both you and Charlotte have pointed out, defunding the police when you ask activists about it doesn't actually mean defunding, as in entirely getting rid of police forces and letting anarchy reign on the streets of America, though that's how it's often characterised by opponents of the movement. To me, reducing police budgets makes some sense, in the sense that crime is much lower in America now than it was 10, 20 years ago, despite the recent uptick. You know, there's been a big improvement there. That would seem to suggest there's room to to move money away from some of the more militarized aspects of policing in American cities to, say, mental health services. But on the other side of that argument, there are a lot of people who say, well, crime is low now precisely because you know, American cities have been spending a lot of money on the police. And if you reduce police budgets, you're going to see a crime spike. Is there a way of untangling the evidence on that in a way that can kind of get us to an empirically satisfying answer? Or is it just impossible to entangle kind of cause and effect here? I think that determining cause and effect when it comes to crime on a grand scale is really, really difficult. I can see the merits of both arguments. I keep coming back to a problem that someone in Minneapolis raised with me, which is that almost everyone agrees, police and non-police agree, that 
police are probably not best placed to respond to mental health crises and overdoses, that you should have trained professionals that a large number of police shootings happen in these mental health crisis situations. So it would be better if an armed officer weren't there. The problem is a lot of these situations are quite unpredictable. So what happens if you are an addiction counselor or a mental health professional and you want an armed officer as backup? You will feel a lot safer going into an unknown situation if you have someone there as backup. Do you send in both of them? Do you send in one of them? Do you decide that as a city we have to expect that mental health professionals and addiction counselors who are unarmed are willing to put themselves in these dangerous situations? So cause and effect on a grand scale for crime is really hard to determine, but so is the sort of precise texture and nuance of these policies surrounding defunding and abolition. And that's where I think the real work has to be done. What's interesting politically is that you have the president trying to make it very simple, trying to make this complicated subject very simple. And he's casting Democrats as wanting to do away with police entirely. There was a really interesting interview that Chris Wallace of Fox did with Trump, where they got into an exchange about what Joe Biden thinks about defunding the police. And President Trump wanted to say that Joe Biden wants to defund the police. Chris Wallace said, sir, he does not. And there was one of these now signature situations in which the president very firmly says, no, there was a charter. Let's bring out the charter. He gestures to someone off screen to try to bring evidence of what Biden has said. Indeed, the president is wrong. Biden has not called for defunding the police. He is open to reducing funding and redirecting some resources elsewhere. But what the president said is, it says abolish, is what President Trump said about a document on criminal justice reform that Biden has supported. Um, I went through that document and that it does say abolish a few times, but nothing about abolishing police departments. It talks about abolishing the death penalty, abolishing life without parole for juveniles, and it talks about abolishing exploitative labor in prisons. But you see this attempt to really simplify Democrats' position on crime and position on police for President Trump's political gain. Well, thank you both. There are some echoes of that in prior election campaigns. And in a moment, we'll spill back to the 80s to find out what campaign strategy and gangster rap have in common. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're really missing out. You'll get the best offer on a new subscription by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. In the latest edition, you can read John's reporting from Minneapolis, Charlotte writing about copper and gold, There's also an extended report on the Midwest that I can really recommend. The link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. The summer of 1988 was blistering hot. Wildfires torched Yellowstone, and from the tinderbox of south-central Los Angeles, a new kind of rap music began to engulf America. Violent, profane, and exhilaratingly anti-establishment, NWA were the perfect antidote to the behemoth of black entertainment at the time. Hey, did, did I ask you to turn the music off? No. Bill Cosby's NBC show about an obstetrician, his lawyer wife, and their family foibles 
was upper-middle-class comfort bottled in a hit sitcom. Dad, can I turn the music off? Yes. Thank you. O'Shea Jackson, NWA's lyricist, rejected all that Reagan-era respectability. He abandoned his studies in architecture, renamed himself Ice Cube, and wrote revenge fantasies about shooting back at abusive cops. In his cool iconoclasm, Ice Cube resembles another game-changer from that hot summer of 1988. Mike Dukakis wants to help. His college opportunity plan says that if a kid like Jimmy has the grades for college, America should find a way to send him. Mike Dukakis, a president for the 90s. After the party convention in July, the Democratic nominee looked a shoe-in for the White House. His Oscar-winning cousin, Olympia, led the celebrity endorsements. Well, today, one of their sons stands before you with the opportunity to be president of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with honor, with pride, and with love that I give you Michael S. Dukakis. The Gallup poll gave the Massachusetts governor a 17-point lead over Vice President George Bush. Waspy and aloof, Bush was a poor campaigner in a country accustomed to the luster of Ronald Reagan. As president, I'll have a lot of reason to help Hispanics everywhere because I'll not only be answering to my grandchildren, I'll be answering to history. Bush would have to ditch the Cosby-esque kumbaya if he was going to win. And in Lee Atwater, he had a campaign manager whose disdain for propriety would make it happen. Atwater put up a portrait in Bush campaign headquarters, a grainy mugshot of a black man with a shaggy beard. The man was William Horton. Convicted of murder in Massachusetts, he escaped while on weekend release, adding rape, robbery and assault to his crimes. Atwater decided Horton would effectively become Dukakis's running mate. Governor Dukakis hadn't instituted the furlough scheme that let Horton out of prison. His Republican predecessor did. But Dukakis had vetoed a proposal to scrap it. That was all Atwater needed. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. Bush began bringing up the issue on the stump and one of the most notorious political adverts ever aired that September. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. By making sure every voter knew the story of Willie Horton, Atwater reframed the election to be about rising crime and Dukakis's apparent weakness in dealing with it. Former presidential candidate Jesse Jackson and Dukakis's actual running mate, Lloyd Benson, decried the ad as racist, but the candidate himself fell into the trap laid for him during the debates. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favour an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. George Bush won the 1988 election in a landslide, the likes of which we've not seen since. Thank you all. He carried 40 states, beating Dukakis by 7 million votes. The new president's eldest son, George W., had an office across from Atwater's. If he was looking for a lesson from the heat of the 88 campaign, it was that it pays to ditch decorum. 
Just as NWA traded on caricatures of black criminality, a warning from the FBI and a ban from MTV to go platinum. Lee Atwater's politics may have come with a parental advisory, but he mellowed when faced with death from cancer just a couple of years later. In an interview with Time, he apologised for his, quote, naked cruelty to Dukakis and lamented the spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumour of the soul. So Charlotte, a Democratic nominee who's miles ahead in the polls in July, a Republican nominee who attempts to define his opponent as soft on crime. Is any of this sounding familiar? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Trump continues to tweet law and order in all caps repeatedly. He's done so more than a dozen times. So he clearly sees this as a winning issue. He has a new ad, which I recommend that listeners watch themselves, but essentially it shows an older lady at home, uh, a demographic that he's had trouble with recently. He really needs to win older voters, but he's not done as well because of his performance on COVID recently. But there's there's an older woman at home. She's watching a news program in which they're talking about Seattle defunding the police and not having support for 911 callers. A mysterious figure is outside and is breaking into the house. She tries to pick up the phone and call 911, and she gets an answering machine. And then sort of the phone falls ominously to the floor as she's presumably attacked. So Trump really does see this as playing very well for him, and he's going all in. Lee Atwater would have been proud of that ad. It's truly horrible, isn't it? I also think on top of that, Donald Trump is not a good law and order candidate, is he? I mean, it's not just the stuff that people like us worry about, the rule of law, the abuse of the Department of Justice, and so on. It's that if you are somebody who thinks that America is in chaos at the moment, who would you look to to bring stability? And it seems to me Donald Trump is just a really, really bad candidate of stability in America. He's not that, right? He's the chaos candidate. And so I think that makes it harder for this to work for him as well. I think that's right. But again, it also really does depend what you're looking at. If you look at Portland, where there has been really remarkable clashes in in recent weeks, Trump does not look like the law and order president. If you're showing images of looting or you're showing images of graffiti, which has really increased in New York, and you point to the murder rate in some cities, I can see how Trump tries to build on this. And with Biden, it's interesting because he really was an architect in many ways for the criminal justice system as it is today with all of its flaws. The new document that we talked about earlier in the show that includes a Democratic Party, essentially a a unity document between the progressive part of the Democratic Party and the moderates with Biden. And in the section on police reform, it talks about really reversing what Biden helped build. So not having all the extra military equipment go to local police forces, reducing the number of police officers in school, not having drug use be something that's criminalized. Those are all things that can be linked back to Biden, both in the 90s and even more recently. So it does show how he has continued to evolve on this. And it is a pretty dramatic change. Democrats would argue in a good way, and Republicans will try to argue that it's in a bad way. I mean, the other much simpler reason that the law and order pitch may not work is that the chaos that Donald Trump is decrying is taking place now while he is president. So the pitch is essentially reelect me so I can stop what's happening now 
the question becomes, why don't you just stop it now? Charlotte made a very good point, I think, about how Joe Biden, like other people at the center of the Democratic Party, were paranoid about appearing soft on crime in the 80s and the 90s. You know, they'd learned the lesson of the loss to Nixon and subsequent defeats of the Democratic Party. And they thought, you know, you couldn't be outflanked by Republicans on crime because that was just a loser. And if you were outflanked, you'd never get power and then you couldn't do the things you wanted to do. The dynamics there seem to have changed now, don't they, Charlotte? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Biden in the 90s used the language that we hear now about talking about police officers as soldiers and the war on crime and this sort of militarized rhetoric was reflected in the militarization of the police more substantively in the way that police were deployed and the equipment that they were provided. And it makes sense that now would be the moment for Democrats to really rethink the way that crime and policing does and doesn't work for them as a political platform, both because generally violent crime has declined so dramatically since the 1990s and because you have these very, very visible incidents, including the George Floyd death, but obviously not uh, limited to that. So I see this as a natural and very long evolution of Democrats that began in the 80s with that acknowledgement that Democrats couldn't be seen as soft on crime to where they are now. And what's interesting is that the Democrats are, are seeing this sort of natural evolution, which you can critique or not, but Republicans have very much stick to the same playbook. I mean, this is the the exact same thing that we saw Nixon do. It's a decades-long argument. So we'll see how this plays out. Thanks both. We'll turn to Portland and how the dramatic scenes of federal police on the streets there might change the politics of crime in just a minute. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Our Lexington column this week argues that the events in Portland should be understood as a rerun of the stunt President Trump attempted last month in Lafayette Square when federal police and troops tear-gassed peaceful protesters to clear a space for him to brandish a Bible outside a church. That stunt backfired, as we've discussed on the podcast before. But Portland is different. There, paramilitary-style federal officers have been filmed hustling peaceful protesters into unmarked cars. The president has denounced the protesters as anarchists. One of them is Joanne Hardesty, She's a city commissioner who's been leading efforts to defund the police in Portland. If you've seen any of the pictures, Portland looks like a war zone every single night. When I left downtown last Friday night where we sang, we played music, it was totally peaceful. Ten minutes after I left, they came and attacked everybody. And there were elderly people, there were children in the crowd. What are you doing? Use your words, what are you doing? How are we fighting back? The Oregon Attorney General has filed a lawsuit. The governor is demanding an investigation of who these people are. What is going on? Who are you? Our congressional delegation is actually working on trying to pull the money. We are using every legal avenue that we have to fight back against this insanity. 
And I hope that people nationally are seeing that we have moms for the last three nights that have been protesting and they've been putting on funny costumes and singing songs. And they have been brutalized every single night. What people outside of Portland need to know is they're using war weapons. We have vans with no insignias grabbing people off the street and taking them away. What's your name? What's Tell your us name? your name. What's your name? Okay, you're fine. We'll get you out. Bro, what? Right. We got you for... I think having these federal troops come in is a pushback because I have been able to cut with my colleagues $27 million out of the police budget. We need a whole lot less police than we have. Let me just be clear, we're not going anywhere. Our community is coming out in full force. We will not be intimidated. We will not be silenced. And we will make sure the world knows that Trump is acting illegally. He is not supposed to be deploying troops onto U.S. soil against U.S. community members. Charlotte, since Donald Trump came to power, there's been a lot of concern in America about creeping authoritarianism. And to my mind, at least, often that's been a bit overheated. But what's happening in Portland actually kind of looks like the real deal, doesn't it? That's such a good point, that there has been this tension throughout the Trump presidency where he does something and then there's a reaction to it. And then people judge the reaction as being hysterical. But there are certain times when it seems like Trump is basically feeding a caricature of himself to those who would try to criticize him. One of them was his separation of children and their parents at the the border. That really stuck out to me in his first term as being a sort of gift to Democrats who would try to portray the president as heartless. And then in this instance in Portland, you had a time when Trump could, you know, if you could kind of make a credible case, look at the murder rates that are rising in cities, look at some of this looting, those could really fit into Trump's playbook. But then he takes it further and has this really dramatic escalation of events in Portland that you almost can't make up. So I see what's happening in Portland as being hugely unfortunate and also a gift to the left. John, do you see it the same way? I think that what we see in Portland is not the police restoring order. I think what we have seen is federal troops sent against the wishes of local government operating with an extremely creative interpretation of their mandate, fomenting disorder, tear gassing peaceful protesters, searching for a justification. I think what we have seen is quite frightening. And I know that these sorts of comparisons have only limited utility, but I just imagine what Republicans would have said had Barack Obama sent federal troops after Tea Party demonstrators in 2010 against the wishes of local governors. I think it's a very dangerous precedent. This week, President Trump said he would send about 200 federal agents to Chicago. And Bill Barr, the attorney general, said they would be doing, quote unquote, standard anti-criminal activities. That is targeting gang violence, gun violence, working alongside regular police officers. And you see here the White House trying to distinguish what they're going to do in Chicago and other American cities from what the American public has seen over the past month. And I think that's a reflection of the reality that when the president talks about law and order, 
So far, it hasn't been particularly confidence-inspiring. The National Guard using tear gas against peaceful protesters, is that really law and order? Rounding up protesters in unmarked vans in Portland, is that law and order? And you can be someone who supports public safety measures and look at the president's version of law and order to date and say, essentially, thanks, but no thanks. And here, the White House is trying to seem a bit more productive to have more regular cooperation with cities and to deal with gun violence and gang violence and the murder rate. But even here, I think it's going to be contentious. Lori Lightfoot, who is the Chicago mayor, seemed open to it, you know, tentatively. In Kansas City, though, which is another place receiving an influx of federal agents, the mayor learned about those actions on Twitter. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, the mayor there said the federal presence would actually make his job harder. So I think you do see Trump trying to be a bit more conventional in his definition of law and order compared with, again, using tear gas against people protesting peacefully. But even here, I think it's going to be controversial. Yeah, and there's another controversial element, which is the way Trump has tried to link the recent spikes in violent crime in some places with the defund the police movement. We also heard Nikema Levy-Armstrong from Minneapolis say that was something she was worried about. So for some context on this, I called John Pfaff. He is a law professor at Fordham and the author of Locked In, which is a terrific book about the role of prosecutors in creating mass incarceration. We tend to view police as sort of these objective describers of the criminal environment as an objective agency that responds to crime, right? But they are a political institution facing more sustained opposition than they have in, in, in probably anytime they can remember, the narrative jumps from rising crime to rising crime to focus on the thing they want to talk about. Why is NYPD talking about shootings? Because homicide is not up enough, right? And so they focus on shootings instead. If homicide was up, they talk about that. Don't lose sight of the fact that many other crimes are going down at the exact same time. Yeah, John, I'm really struck by how contested this whole area of cause and effect is when it comes to crime rates. I mean, the great crime decline that's been underway since the late 90s is one of the least understood phenomenon in, in sort of American social science. There are so many competing theories. And I, I struggle to think of another area where there's kind of less consensus, frankly. And, and equally, if you go back even further to the crime spike that took place in the 60s and 70s, you know, that seems to be really poorly understood as well. I've spent some time with historians trying to figure out what's going on there. And, and again, there are some big demographic explanations, which people come back to. But it's really hard to get an answer on, you know, what was behind the crime rise then and what was behind the crime decline. John, I think that's exactly right. The one thing that seems to be widely agreed on is that in the late 1980s, there was an immense crime spike driven by sort of control of the crack market, not by use of crack, but by violence surrounding the market itself. Now, what caused crime to go down after that? There are a number of different theories that John brought up. One of them is baby boomers aging out of crime. But of course, millennials are also a big cohort and they haven't grown into crime. There is getting rid of lead and gasoline. Exposure to lead among children causes some brain damage and may lead to loss of impulse control. But of course, there's still lead in pipes and paint. There's mass incarceration that by locking up so many people, we locked up anybody who may have grown into a hardened criminal. There's better policing. Nobody really knows exactly how important in the whole thing each factor is. It's funny because there's a distinction between what's actually happening with crime rates and what people 
think is happening with crime rates. And there's also a distinction between the very detailed policy arguments that people can have about the impact of broken windows policing or stop and frisk or any number of other crime policies that have existed over the past two decades. But the polling suggests that there is actually little correlation between fear of crime and the crime rate, and there is growing support for police reform. Most people, when polled by the Washington Post and ABC recently, said that they trust Biden by a nine-point margin on issues of crime and safety. Interestingly, in one of our polls, 53% of majorities opposed, quote-unquote, defunding police departments, and only 24% support it, which plays to that I think problem that Democrats have with branding when they seized on the language around defunding police departments, because there is some confusion about what that actually means and what is intended by it. But generally, you know, people think that police reform is increasingly important and that it's more important to have a president who can heal racial divisions versus one that takes a pretty strong view on strict, simple enforcement. Yeah, it does look an awful lot to me like this law and order strategy that the president's embarked on is a losing strategy. But I can't quite shake an uneasy feeling that if coronavirus hadn't come along, it might just have worked for him. Okay, before I let you go, and John, before you're allowed to go and get some fresh air, it's quiz time. The Economist's last issue before the 1988 election correctly surmised that Mike Dukakis was destined to lose – Voters saw him as, quote, a crybaby for calling out the Bush campaign's fear and smear tactics, the paper reported. The campaign was the dirtiest in memory. They hadn't seen 2016, but it did have some limits. Personal matters, the Economist reports, were quite properly out of bounds. A Dukakis campaign staffer had to resign after spreading gossip about Bush. What was the allegation? He had a long-standing affair, but I can't remember with whom. I think you'd be forgiven for not knowing the names of every supposed mistress. <laughs> it was indeed that Bush had been unfaithful. Dukakis personally apologised to Bush for the remarks made by a deputy field director, Donna Brazil. Brazil, who'll be well known to political junkies who lived through the 2016 cycle and is now a Fox News contributor. The Bush campaign, for its part, was forced to refute allegations made about Mike Dukakis's wife. What was the rumour Lee Atwater helped spread about Kitty Dukakis's radical past? Oh, I thought the rumour was that she was an addict. I thought the rumour was that she had a drinking or drug problem. Uh, wasn't it that she was um, anti, anti-war or something, that she was some kind of radical in the 60s? I think it was something related to radical protests against the Vietnam War, but I can't recall what she was accused of specifically. Well, I think you can both have a point for that. There were rumours about addiction swirling around Kitty Dukakis in 1988, which no doubt Republican operatives helped to spread. But the one I was after was one Charlotte put her finger on. She was accused of having burned the American flag in protest at the Vietnam War. Dukakis is interesting as a political spouse because she's been quite open about different uh, struggles she's had. I think that she had a book in which she wrote about depression and receiving um, electroshock therapy. She's kind of an interesting figure. All right. Well, thanks, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. You can now get out of your car and get some fresh air. Uh, Thanks, John. That's all from us. 
If you like the podcast, please tell people to listen and leave a rating and a review in the usual places. We've had some lovely ones in the past couple of weeks, so thank you very much for those. We haven't mentioned Congressman John Lewis, who passed away this week, but you can hear John Fasman's tribute to the giant of the civil rights movement on Friday's episode of The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast. Check out Economist Radio on your podcast app for that. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.